I think they were taking bets in the choirs to whether I would be crying when I stood up uh, to speak. What a moving, what a moving song. Find Mark, please. Mark chapter 8. We're going to read verses 34 to 37. Last week we talked about uh, radical hospitality. Today we talk about relational discipleship. These are two foci, two uh, elements of the vision that you discerned five years ago. Radical hospitality and relational discipleship. I'm talking about those two in these two weeks. And, and I'll read here in just a moment from the book of Mark. But first let me tell you just a quick uh, story. There once was a there once was an ambitious farmer who sold milk from his cow to the nearby village, and he enjoyed selling milk to the village, enjoyed his, his way of making a living. But then he looked at his, his income sheet, and he realized that a lot of his profit was going toward food for the cow, that, that feeding the cow so much was really eating into his profits. And so he decided on a different business plan. He decided that he would, well, he decided that he would just stop feeding the cow, and and that worked well until the cow dropped dead. The, the moral of the story is if you want milk, you've got to feed the cow. If you, if you want a return, you have to make an investment. If you want a strong, healthy soul, you have to invest in it. Mark 8, Jesus speaks, beginning at uh, verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said... Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? Your soul is that inner place, that deep, mysterious, spiritual place where you are you. That deep, mysterious inner place that is not definable, really, in human terms. It is not discoverable by CAT scans and x-rays and MRIs or exploratory surgery. It is that deep, inner, spiritual, mysterious place that survives, that lives on beyond your final breath. That deep, inner, mysterious place where you connect with your Creator and your Father. It's not your personality, it's not your emotions, it's not your thoughts. It's that deep, inner, mysterious, personal place where you are you. That's where you can... That's where God connects with you. The psalmist declared, praise the Lord, O my soul. Later declared, hope in God, O my soul. Later declared, for God alone my soul waits. I, I wait for God, my soul waits for God. Mary in the Christmas story, Mary declares, my soul magnifies the Lord. I, I worship, she said, from my soul. Truth is, you can ignore your soul, and lots of Christians do. There are Christians who would say, Jesus saved my soul, and we haven't paid attention to it since. And so we tend to live rather shallow and hollow and even empty lives, not paying any attention to, the, to our soul. So this morning, I want to try to 
answer three questions. One, what does a healthy, strong soul look like? Two, do you really want a healthy, strong soul? And three, how do you get one if you want one? Number one, what does a, a healthy, strong soul look like? The Bible helps us here. A healthy, strong soul is at rest and it is anchored. What does a healthy soul look like? It is at rest. It is anchored. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 speaks of that rest. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus said, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What does that rest mean? It's contentment. Freedom. Freedom from deep anxiety. Freedom from the the overwhelming compulsion to make people like us. It's the feeling like a, a house that is deeply rooted into, it has its foundation built solidly on a rock. The soul that is at rest experiences peace. Not the absence of turmoil, not the absence of conflict, but a deep, Peace, like an ocean, like deep in an ocean, when a, when a storm may be raging on the, on the surface, so there's thunder and lightning and winds and waves, and, and yet you get down beneath the surface, not very far, and, and everything is as still and as, a, as calm as it was before the storm blew up. A strong, healthy soul. is at rest. A strong, healthy soul also is, is deeply anchored. Hebrews 6, 19. We have this hope, hope in Jesus as an anchor for your soul. You can have an anchored soul. I was on a plane once and reached to the back of the seat in front of me, got a magazine uh, from that uh, plane, that airline, and read an article by a lady named Faith Popcorn. Her real name is Faith Plotkin, but she's a futurist. She, she reads trends and she predicts trends in American life. And she said, and I don't know if she's a Christian or not, this was not a Christian article, but she said, Americans are looking for an anchor. With our world so crazy and our, our lives so messy and everything changing so rapidly, she said, Americans are looking for an, an anchor. Wouldn't it be wonderful to feel anchored? A strong soul, the Bible tells us, is at rest. And a strong soul is anchored. That's the first question, what's a, what's a strong soul look like? It is, it is at rest, it is an anchored. Second question, do you really want a, a strong soul? Every coach, I think, has said at one time or another to his or her team, you got to want this, and that's what I would say to you. If you, do you really want a do you really want a strong soul? Gary Player is one of the most popular uh, pro golfers of our lifetime. He uh, in, his, in his heyday was one of the best pro golfers of our lifetime, and he's always good with fans. He was patient and kind and and jovial with fans. But he'd heard it a thousand times. People saying. I'd give anything if I could hit a golf ball like you. And there was one day, maybe he was, maybe he was tired and grumpy, but somebody said it, he was tired of hearing it. I, somebody, one of the fans said, I'd give anything if I could hit a golf ball like you. And Gary Player turned on him and said, no, you wouldn't. You'd give anything to hit a golf ball like me if it was easy. 
Do you know what, it, you've, what you've got to do to hit a golf ball like me? You've got to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, go out on the course, hit a 1,000 golf balls. Your hand starts bleeding, and you walk up to the clubhouse, wipe the blood off your hands, slap a bandage on it, and go out and hit another 1,000 golf balls. That's what it takes to hit a golf ball like me. So that, what that fan really meant was, you know, if I didn't have to do a lot of work, I'd love to hit a golf ball like you. Do you really want a, a soul that is in such a crazy world with such messy lives? Do you, would you really want a soul that is at rest and that is deeply anchored? That's the second question. The third question is how do you get one if you really want one? What is how do you get a strong soul? First, your, your church owes you a responsibility. We, we have a responsibility to provide for you Bible study classes, to provide for you mission opportunities, service opportunities. We, your leadership has a responsibility to nurture the fellowship of our church because if, because if we ever get at each other, you know, people don't grow well when there's a ten, a, 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 an atmosphere of tension and and mistrust, and so we, we owe you a responsibility, and, and I have a responsibility to you. Every time I stand here to do my best to, to be clear with the message, to be applicable, to give you meat to chew on, I have a responsibility, but most of the responsibility rests with you if you really want a strong soul. So where do you get a strong soul? The Bible helps us out here too. Number one, get rid of what is doing war with your soul. Second, 1 Peter 2.11, dear friends, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Some of us are engaging in practices and in relationships that are, that are damaging our souls, sucking the very life out of our souls, practices, behaviors that are waging war against our souls. When we lived in Richmond, our, our a big part of our backyard, a big portion of our backyard uh, was, uh, was dirt and, uh, and, and trees. And um, we wanted to grow grass there. We tried to grow grass there. We found out that the people who occupied our house previously also tried to grow grass there. And we were told by the experts, if you want to grow grass here, you're going to have to cut the trees. For a couple of reasons. One, the trees were preventing sunlight getting to the grass, and, and two, the, or where the grass would be, and, and two, the, the trees, there were so many trees, they were sucking the very nutrients out of the soil where we were planting grass seed and watering it and having no luck. So they said, if you want grass, you've got to get rid of the trees. Well, we weren't going to get rid of the trees, frankly, because I like trees, and, and I'm the one who decides that kind of thing at our house. So I, we were... Um, we, did, we weren't going to get, Carrie thought we ought to get rid of the trees, but I thought, no, I like those trees, and so we, we're not going to get rid of those trees. And then, then one Sunday night, we had a bunch of folks over at our house, and Carrie went out back with three of the children, and they played. When everybody had left, uh, Carrie issued a declaration, we're going to get rid of those trees. The kids, she said, were playing on that hard ground in the dirt, and she said, one of these days we're going to have grandchildren. If we want our grandchildren to play in our backyard, we need grass. And so she said, we, we're going to get rid of the trees. Well, I decided that we should get rid of the trees at, at that point. 
And you know what happened? Uh, it never did become a plush, you know, like a golf course, but grass was growing when we left. Nineteen trees we cut down. Some of you would like a strong soul, but you're not yet ready to get rid of the things that are sucking the life out of your souls. Some practices, some behaviors, some relationships. As a quick side trip, pornography is waging war like an epidemic against the souls of men. What is it that's, that's waging war against your soul? If you want a strong soul, one, the Bible says get rid of those things that wage war against it. There's some things you've got to cut out. But then there's more. You have to train for it. 1 Timothy 4.8, train yourself in godliness. You can't just decide to do better. You have to train. You have to become a different person. And that takes training. And the training, the spiritual training is what we call spiritual disciplines, the disciplines in which Jesus engaged. Worship is a spiritual discipline. You hear engaging in that discipline now, but, but worship as a spiritual discipline is something that we discipline ourselves to do. We don't just get up on Sunday morning and check the weather and check our schedules and say, you know, am I tired? Am I not? You just do it. It's a discipline. That's a spiritual discipline of corporate worship. Bible study in a group corporately. We need each other when we study the Bible together. It kind of checks and balances to each other. And we need the fellowship of Bible study. But private Bible study is a discipline too. Get you a good study Bible and, and make that a part of your daily routine. Bible study and prayer, not just as a 911 call, but as part of the warp and woof of, the, of your life where we adore God and confess to God and thank God and, and ask God. It's a spiritual discipline. Financial stewardship is a spiritual discipline. The trust that goes into giving a tithe of our income back to God and missions offerings like to support the Busbys above that. That's, that's a spiritual discipline. Silence is a discipline. Solitude is a discipline. Fasting is a discipline. Where we, we, we go without food for 24 hours or we skip lunch all week or or maybe if you can't do that, physically can't do that, we can, we can give up something important to us so that we say, God, I am so deeply dependent on you. I, I will show you that. I will demonstrate that by my fasting. You don't just decide to do better. You don't just decide to have a stronger soul. We, we become, by training, people with stronger souls. It's hard to believe football season's almost over, but... I was watching a game when a, the commentators were talking about the, the offensive line on this particular team, and they were talking about how much better this offensive line was before or now than they were last year because they said they have a new coach. And they said this guy came in here and he put him on a strict training regimen, strength training, agility training, speed training. He said he put him on a diet. They lost an average of 40 pounds each, those offensive linemen. He didn't just come in and give them a pep talk. He, he taught them to train, to be, to be different. You've got to train for a, a strong soul. What, do you, what does a strong soul look like? It is at rest and it is deeply anchored. 
do you really want a strong soul hard enough to, do you want it badly enough to work hard at it? How do you get a strong soul? Well, you, you get rid of those things that are, that are warring with your soul and you train through the practice of spiritual disciplines for godliness. That's discipleship, but this phrase we're talking about this morning is relational discipleship, meaning that we do this, we do all these things together. In 1 Timothy 1, there's an odd passage where Paul, the missionary, writes to Timothy and the church he leads about a man who was habitually immoral. And, and Paul says, you should, and this is where it gets so odd, he said, you should turn him out. Meaning at least for a while, at least temporarily, he doesn't get to participate in the life of the church. And I think it's in verse 18 of 1 Timothy 1 where it reads, doing so is like handing, and this is where it gets odd again, it's it's like handing him over to Satan. It's a, it's a confusing text. One thing we know about that, though, is, is that it tells us that, that without this circle of, of family, this family circle of accountability and support, we are, we are in spiritual danger. Without this family circle of accountability and support, we are in spiritual danger. We need each other. We need to be, and it's hard. I know sometimes church is hard and sometimes it's hurtful and sometimes churches don't seem helpful, but we desperately need each other. This is relational discipleship. Pastor went to visit a man who was out on his own, wasn't part of the church, said to the pastor, you know, I can do this on my own. I don't need the church. I can follow Jesus on my own. They were debating. The pastor wasn't getting anywhere. They were sitting in front, though, of this warm and welcoming fire. And the pastor got up, walked over to the fire, and he took some tongs, and he, he took a coal, one of the coals, uh, away from the fire. And they just sat there and watched it as as its warmth waned, as its flame flickered, as its fire faded, they just watched that coal lose its red glow and become cold. Pastor didn't need to say anything else. Pastors are so wise, you know. He, the man got the point that we need, we need each other. This is relational discipleship. Jesus didn't found shrines. Shrines are where individuals worship. He founded a community. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. He intended us to live in community. We are, we are family. So what, is a, what does a strong soul look like? It's, it's at rest. It's anchored. Do you really want a strong soul? And if you want one, then there's some things we're going to have to cut out. And, and then we train through practicing spiritual disciplines, and we do all this together. Jesus said, what, would, what good is it if, if you have all the trappings of success, if you gain the entire world and lose your, your soul, that inner you, that that inner place, that deep inner place where you are you, that, that deep, mysterious, spiritual place that, that lasts beyond our, our final breath, that, that place where you connect with your creator. 
Gordon McDonald told about a man who, who wanted to build the coolest boat in the boat club. And so he set out to do just that. He planned it well. He planned to have the latest technology, cutting-edge technology, state-of-the-art stuff. It had all the bells and whistles, beautiful, expansive sails, the woodwork, the decoration, the paint, everything was just right. It was indeed the coolest boat in the boat club. It was time uh, to commission it and for its first sail. So the boat club folks gathered and they broke champagne over the bow and they cheered and they clapped and they oohed and they awed at this wonderful boat. And then a couple of the boats actually escorted this new cool boat out of the harbor, kind of a parade of celebration of sorts. And, and the boat and its owner, its maker, its builder sailed until it ran into a storm. When the storm blew up, one big wave tossed this coolest boat in the boat club over on its side. And had you been there, had you been there, you'd have seen what was missing. The keel that beneath the boat, which provides stability. The ballast that beneath the boat, which provides weight, was missing. The coolest boat in the boat club had all the bells and whistles and everything above the waterline was wonderful, but you couldn't tell until it tipped over that there was something badly missing. The body of the boat's owner and builder never was found. And it was only when, um, when the wreckage of the boat washed up on shore that people knew that it wasn't all that they thought it was. It was with all its bells and whistles and coolness, it was missing that which goes beneath the waterline. How are things for you beneath the, the waterline? Not your reputation, not what people think of you. You can be the coolest boat in the boat club and be missing that which really counts. I'm talking, of course, about your soul. Some of you are followers of Jesus who would say, God, Jesus saved my soul, but you're living shallow, hollow, rather empty lives because you're not paying attention to your soul. Some of you perhaps are not even sure about the eternal destiny of your soul. We would love to talk with you about that. And we sing to give you an opportunity. 665 is considered generally probably a Thanksgiving song, and maybe it, it is certainly appropriate for that. But because you've been given much, uh, you and I too must give, and we're going to sing that to invite you to make a decision. A half dozen folks became members of our church this morning in the early service, and maybe there'll be someone here who will say, I believe this is where I should be family. And someone else concerned about maybe the eternal destiny of your soul, we'd be thrilled, the ministers down here would be thrilled to talk with you about that. And we sing not just to wrap things up, but so that you may make a decision.
Would you stand and sing, please?